Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next guest is Helen Slinger. She's the director of the new film on CBC called Hold Your Fire. It's about police shootings. It's about mental health. It's about so much more than that. Helen is with a a company called Bountiful Films, bountiful.ca. Check them out online. And uh, go to cbc.ca and you're going to find out a lot more about uh, how many people were killed in police-related shootings uh, uh, between 2004 and 2014 and about how many different... Um, mental health-related calls, 20,000 alone in Toronto that police respond to every year. I mean, that's an astounding statistic and and the thing that these police officers uh, have to deal with. I mean, it's just so uh, deeply uh, unsettling on so many levels. We talk, uh, Helen and I, about training and de-escalation techniques, and we talk about fear and misunderstanding and mental health issues and about body cams that the police are now wearing and about about pursuing the the difference between help and, 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 and how that can can be uh, presented in a situation like this and the whole idea of listening and and just a real, more relational kind of edge with respect to um, uh, policing and de-escalation techniques and so on. So mobile crisis teams, we get we cover a lot of ground. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Um, again, the film is Hold Your Fire. You can stream it on cbc.ca backslash firsthand. Helen Slinger from Bountiful Films is my guest here today. Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we're joined by a very special guest today, Helen Slinger. Uh, the Vancouver Sun said about her, quote, Helen Slinger's filmmaking is all about taking a grabber of an event and turning it on its head. The documentarian deliberately digs deeper, looking for a real meaning beneath the surface shock, close quote. Helen, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So we're going to talk, I think, about a couple of pretty serious issues. This is not going to be necessarily a real cheery pick-me-up, this, uh, this interview, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> no, you never know, but it's true. It's not, not necessarily your happiest time. It's not Netflix territory, exactly. So, so tell me about your new film, Hold Your Fire. Uh, I believe it aired this week on CBC. Yes, it 
it aired the, the third week in January for the first time on CBC. And, of course, it streams for the next six years on cbc.ca, too. So nice. You find it. Hold Your Fire is the title. Correcto. Um, so what it's about is essentially police shootings of people in mental crisis and, and how to stop that from happening. It started out being more broadly about police interactions. Uh, but, of course, it, you get down very quickly to the pointy end. There are a lot of reactions in, in Toronto, 20,000 uh, police interactions with people in mental crisis in one year, 2014. Which is an astounding stat. It, it's an astounding stat. And you say to yourself, okay, well, they're doing it right. You know, these few that happen, right. like Sammy team that are fatalities, well, they're, they're unusual. Well, they are unusual, but it's a matter of whether or not they should happen. And it's also a matter of unpacking the stack, stat a little bit. And, and knowing that most of those 20,000 are very routine calls. They're police officers being called to someone's house because they're uh, having a crisis. They're a regular call. They call 911 because they ha they're having a delusion. Police know who they are. They arrive. They maybe arrive with a, need, with, uh, a nurse in tow. And they help that person either get to aid or they may call a relative. It's a pretty routine Call. So it's not as if it's 20,000 semi-a-team calls. It's 20,000 your neighbor who sometimes is out of control calls. Right. So it's what we looked at was, okay, so why do these few that happen so tragically happen? And, um, and yeah, that's, that's what we spent about two and a half years looking at. Is there a better way? We all know that's true what police say, that they don't get up in the morning heading out to shoot mm -hmm. somebody. We know of that's true, so why does it happen? Yeah, why does it happen in the first place? So when you set out to make the film, would you say you, you knew this was going to be a movie about mental illness or you knew this was going to be a movie about police shootings or was it you weren't quite sure what the story was going to be and it kind of unfolded before your eyes? I knew my business partner and I in Bountiful Films have been looking at something around police interactions with the mentally ill for, for many years. Um, just interested in what seemed to be a growing number of interactions that handled that ended badly, and we have uh, a friend who who suffers from time to time in mental crisis that is that you know fairly extreme delusions and things, and you fear sometimes that something bad could happen if the wrong police officer came across him. So that was the impetus over years of looking at okay, what are what are we looking at here? Are we looking at programs for the mentally ill? Are we looking at police training? We didn't know what we were looking at. And then, like so many people, when Sammy team was shot on that streetcar in the summer of 2013, that focused us really sharply. Okay, mm -hmm. what exactly happened here? Not that we tried to be at all judge and jury on that, right. but simply to back up and look at whether or not anything different could have happened in the system. Not so much with James Priscilla, the, the poor officer who has to live with this for the rest of his life, too. But in the system, could anything have happened differently? Well, it's just, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, yes, just yesterday, I believe I read, I think it was on the BBC's uh, uh, news page about how, uh, might have been CBC, but but 60%, and these stats are always troubling on some level and need to be questioned further, but 60% of soldiers were abused as children. And so you start to you start to wonder about when you watch a film like this. I'm not suggesting that you know 60% of police officers were necessarily abused as kids, but you start to wonder about some of that, uh, some of those connecting points, right? What 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 preceded this kind of violence? What precedes this kind of a response? You know, nine nine shots to take down Sammy Yatim. It's you know uh, the quote in your film is um, quote you 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 answered a call for help with nine bullets. 
That's that's a pretty profound statement. It is pretty profound. I wouldn't. Uh, we didn't look at Priscilla's background, and and I'm less interested in Priscilla, Priscilla's background. Other than I think we make the point much later in the film that police need to look at recruiting, and that's not right. That's not us saying that. That's Terry Coleman, who is the expert that police listen to, saying that. Right. Right. But they're not cautious enough in recruiting, and I think most people know by now that one thing we do know about Priscilla is that he drew his weapon rather more often than um, than is average for a Toronto police officer. So there's something to be looked at there, but I think I understand a lot better why he did fire nine shots, and I certainly have my own theories. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it, and I can really imagine this, this isn't also the first film I've ever done about police, too, so... I've been inside use of force training at the RCMP training center in Regina, and I know what's happening. I know how um, they're, they learn to so fear anyone that might be carrying any kind of edged weapon. So, right. you know, it, in Sammy Atim's case, it was a knife. In the case of Robert Chikansky at Vancouver International Airport in 2007, it was a stapler. There's this reaction to anybody holding anything, and they're trained that anything could be lethal. So so that that's in your head, I think, sure. when you approach something like this. You're not it's not just whether or not, you know, what kind of a childhood you had and how secure you are in your person, although of course that affects everything. Mm-hmm. It's this noise. I think there's just a cacophony in their heads about how dangerous the situation could be. And I think that, that anything that police are trying to do uh, in terms of de escalation, I think it still to a larger extent and again I think this is changing almost month to month too. Police are really struggling with this. But I think that the de-escalation training is being built on top of this use of force training, which is about how your life could be in danger if somebody's holding anything or might be holding right. something. And I think that's what happened with the first three shots. And then, frankly, I think he panicked. He panicked after that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's interesting that in your, at the end of the film, the solution is starts, starts with recruiting and the two points that, that uh, uh, was it Jim in, in the film, I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but it says higher, uh, better training, higher training, and, and some kind of mental health experience. Yes. Some yes. kind of understanding, whatever that means. I mean, uh, you, know, do, you know, do you have to have a past in it? I don't know, but maybe it, just more, more training, I suppose. Yeah, more training, and I think in the, the recruiting piece is really important in terms of what kind of person that you're getting to. Mm. Uh, was Terry Coleman was the police expert that we used, who's a former... Um, police chief, and he's written a few, he's co-authored a few big reports on police interactions with people in mental crisis that have actually been presented at the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. So we know that this guy's like, he's got the seal of approval from the chiefs of police. He knows what he's talking about. And he's the one who makes the point about recruiting. And he goes on, I think this is something that's on the CBC website, on the Hold Your Fire page for the CBC website, is more with Coleman about recruiting. And he goes on to say that he thinks they just move too quickly, trying to fill quotas right. for police officers, yeah, yes. that they're not always looking carefully enough at some of the, the flags that come up that say, hmm, maybe not this person. So there's that. And, yeah, Yakabuchi, who wrote the report after um, the Sammy Yatim Sammy shooting, he was really specific about looking for education and, yes, experience in, in mental health. And, I mean, you can... You and I could come up with a list of what that is. I mean, it could be somebody who's volunteering in mental health. Could be somebody who's taken some courses. Could be somebody who mm-hmm. has a mm-hmm. brother or sister with a you know with a major problem and has dealt has a different point of view rather than well, it's just folk. you know some of the I gotta say Helen, the images in in the film some of them I found profoundly disturbing um, and 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 
uh, man, tragically violent. I mean, I guess all violence is tragic, but there's something about the violence in this film that, that, that's really quite understated, but yet so in your face. And the images of, of, of a man in a white, basically hospital frock being shot dead on the street by, you know, surrounded by stronger men, guys with guns and weapons and so on. And you go for the love, like, Guy, why didn't you just talk to this guy? Now, I mean, I know I wasn't there. It's so easy to, 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 to pass judgment. And yet you guys really juxtapose it so well with the UK case and the machete and, and the way the, the British police officers, you know, ultimately took this guy down in a nonviolent way. Yeah, I found uh, the Michael Elligan, the man in the hospital gun, really disturbing too. Now, police, the officer was declared in that case, and he would very likely have been the Michael Elligan in his hospital gown looking to any average person like a person in need of help, not bullets, mm-hmm. still carrying two pairs of scissors. Um, there's some reporting about whether or not he said something that sounded threatening, too. Right. Um, but he is all those things. He's the guy that police are trained to be afraid of. He's right. He's too close, and he's holding an edged weapon, two edged weapons, actually. So the thing to me that kept getting to me is, why do they have to... There's many eyewitnesses to that case, too, that said, oh, he was just like... You can hear the, the dispatch call, as a matter of fact, in the film, with the, with the 911 officer asking, does he seem dangerous or confused? Right, well, yes. Confused. Yes. So a lot of people saw that, but still police were called to something where, you know, a guy, a disturbed person is carrying scissors. So it's not as if there was no danger at all, but the thing that got to me is, why do they have to come up so fast and hard? Nobody was in immediate danger at that moment. There's lots of other information, including the fact that the guy's in a hospital gown, that tells you that, you know, he's not necessarily... Yeah. Trying to kill somebody. Yeah. It's, it's, he's not in fatigues, you know, no, and doesn't have grenades on his, you know, I just, I don't know. It's so easy to, to, to look at this in hindsight and all that. I get that. But it, at the same time, um, I mean, I, I think what's so brilliant about your film and congratulations on it, by the way, is that, uh, again, it's raising the issues, right? It's getting people hopefully talking about it, going beyond scratching the surface and peeling back some layers to say, well, holy smokes, how, how do you deal with this kind of thing? Uh, if I come across it, I love, I love what you did with the Hamilton team, and 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 just even making making us as the viewers aware that some of this is going on, way underfunded, of course, but but something that maybe maybe this these mobile crisis teams are are, are a step in the right direction. Well, I think they're a step in the right direction, but it's very interesting because I think it's um, when we started making the film, and I started reading about these mobile crisis teams, that you know the partnership of a police officer and some kind of mental health worker going out together, I thought, okay, well, this is great. Like, yeah. that would have saved Sammy a team's life, for sure. sure. And then once you actually start getting into it and getting out in the field, I realized that you'd have to have absolutely every team in a jurisdiction be a mental health team. Otherwise, you could never, ever guarantee that, especially not in a <coughs> traffic like Toronto, mm-hmm. you bet especially in a city like, like Toronto or Vancouver where the traffic's really bad, the odds of getting one of those mobile teams to a right. price very small. Very small, So every yeah. team's got to be trained. That's not going to happen. It's expensive. Why not just train every officer much better? Right, right now for, I think, Toronto and most cities, the, the sort of gold standard for how many of your, of your regular officers are trained in crisis intervention training is something like 30%, 25 mm. to 30%. Well, 
Well, I just think that's goofy. That's to me, that's like having 25 <laughs> right. to 30% of your officers trained with their firearm. Right. I'd really rather flip that around so that 100% of your officers are trained in crisis intervention training and fewer of your officers are trained for firearms, which is essentially what happens in the UK where, you know, they have their problems. It's not a perfect, perfect policing environment there either. But they don't shoot anywhere near as many people, and the attitude is simply totally it, different. The, the attitude's different. That's the sense I got. You know, when you were interviewing one of those officers, we, you know, he he looked at some of the footage and he said, "Oh, I don't even think we would have called for weapons on that call." You know, on the so, team call, no, yeah. Which is which is fascinating to me. I mean, talk about a different culture and a different approach. Yeah, and I can imagine what would I can so easily imagine having spent time in the back of police cars in in. Uh, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. now, I know what would have happened in the U.K. is that they would have possibly closed the, the streetcar door on him. I'm not even sure they would right. have done that. Yeah. But they would have stood back, mm -hmm. and they would have talked, and right. they would have brought some kind of, and you hear this in the documentary, too, they would have figured out some way of containing him yeah, contain without bringing him down. Well, I thought it was really interesting with the with the way that, that you you show the, 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 I don't know, seven or eight officers kind of surrounding the guy with the machete on the street. They had him cornered by a hedge on one side. They were clearly very aware. No weapons. They had no weapons. They were waiting for the guys with shields to yeah. arrive. So the police officer arrives with shields. These men and women come in. They, they kind of form a perimeter around him and almost, you know, box him in, basically. And then get them on the ground and handcuff them. I mean, it just—I don't know. You go, wow, that just seems so smart. It can be done. Yeah, yeah it, right. Exactly, it can be done. Well, and the other thing that really struck me is it's a more relational approach to policing, which, which you know, uh, can you can you think of a better way to build a wall but by pull it, pulling your handgun? You know. Well, exactly. Kind of shuts down the conversation, doesn't it? It's truly. They truly go back to the you know Robert Peel. There's a statue to Robert Peel near one of the places where we were filming in the UK, as a matter of fact. He's sort of seen as being, he's a British parliamentarian who's seen as being the father of modern policing. Mm. He was all about a very fundamental concept that police are citizens. Hmm. And it is that you never, you don't, you're not removed from the citizenry, you right. are still part of the citizenry. Right. So it truly is we are them and they are us. And they simply have this particular responsibility at this time. And it's it sounds so, I don't know, philosophical and simplistic in some ways, and yet I think that's actually where Canadian police need to dig, is back at this really fundamentally cult fundamental cultural stuff. And it's not like, like I think that's simple, because we do live close to the United States, we do have more guns in the culture than mm -hmm. they have in the UK, so there are differences. But I do think that there's a possibility of, of truly understanding that this crisis intervention training has to be across the board. I think there's a there is a cultural shift that can happen still where you're putting use of force training on top of de-escalation training as opposed mm -hmm. to de-escalation training on top of use of force training. Did, did it ever come up? Did, did you and, and, and others working on the film ever just say, why don't you guys just shoot to wound? Why do you have to shoot to kill these folks? Can't you know, you, we, of course, asked lots. Of yeah, can't you just take, take the guy down? The general, I came to believe the general response to that because I heard it from too many very good officers that really average citizens who have not been in this kind of a situation really don't have any idea how difficult it is to do that. Right. That the reason they're taught to shoot center mass 
is not so they'll kill somebody, but it's simply because it's a larger target and there's a reasonably good chance of hitting it. Yeah, yeah. Shooting shooting somebody in the leg or the calf is not necessarily yeah. as easy as Clint Eastwood makes it out to be. Well, exactly. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm with the, why didn't you just back up? That's the right, that to right. Me is fundamental. Yeah, I mean, if it's 21 feet, we'll move to 25 feet, right? I mean, what, 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 there was a video you guys showed about surviving edged weapons uh, uh, out of the States that said you needed 20, 21 feet between you and the potential perpetrator, I guess, to react. Well, yeah, don't, and don't that you was an exercise to show how quickly people can move. Right. So if that's the, really the perimeter, then can't you, like you say, can't you just back up? Yeah, and do you want to start with your weapon in the first place? Is I'd back up right. further. So are, are, are the police officers in the audience listening to this right now, uh, Helen, going, yeah, you guys don't understand? Uh, it's actually been a really interesting response. There's been some, yeah, you guys don't understand. Um, and there's been quite a lot of, quite quiet, mostly coming into my email, but a little bit actually even on Twitter. There's been some some really encouraging response hmm. um, saying that, that, that they think the documentary is good and that it's been screened. I know it's been screened in senior circles. Hmm. And I think, I mean, I tried not to be black and white and confrontational because I don't think the police are black and media right. is white. Or, um, I think we all are trying to do a good job here. I think we all do have the same core goals. So I tried not to be, I don't know, I tried not to be cheeky. I just tried right. to be thoughtful. Sure. And I think that that, that <clears throat> thoughtful police officers have been able not to agree with everything that we did, but to say, okay, well, is there something in here? Should we actually maybe try to be open to whether or not this this sheds any more light on the changes that they're already trying to make? You you talk a little bit about... Uh, um, I love that Albuquerque, by the way, comes up in your film. It just always makes me laugh when I hear the word Albuquerque, and I'm not sure why. I think it has something to do with Bugs Bunny, but he should have taken that left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> it's um, one of those places, Albuquerque. Yeah, sure. yeah. Who 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 decided to name it Albuquerque? That's what I want to know. I don't um, know. That makes me tempted to Google it right now. <laughs> yeah. So so this and then I think at that point you talked a little bit about this aggressive police culture uh, coming mm -hmm. coming out of the U.S. And maybe the implication is that it's you know having an impact and having an influence us on us up here and in Canada. And then the the lawyer that we see in the film says, you know, uh, a police officer that he had talked to on a particular case said once in response to kind of the why, he's, well, first we get control, then we answer questions. So that's why we pull our gun, yeah. you know, uh, or at least that was the implication. The quote is, quote, first we get control, then we answer questions, close quote. And so is that, I mean, are they connected? Is it is it really kind of, you know, you talk about Robert Peel and, and being citizens, but... Are we talking about a power dynamic here that's kind of maybe getting out of out of hand? Well, yeah, I think so. And I think what we, in Canada we are caught between these two policing cultures. And I think that... Sorry, caught between two policing cultures? Yeah, we're oh, caught okay. between our, our old British history. Right, okay. Yep. Which would lead us back towards, you know, more de-escalation, <coughs> more of this notion of the police officer as just another citizen and this American gun-happy culture. Mm. And mm. it is also interesting traveling in the back of a police car in hmm. the States, I'll tell you, because you suddenly have this different awareness that, yeah, anybody driving past you, any traffic stop that this officer makes, there's a reasonable chance that that person is packing. I mean, it's just the yeah. most bizarre sure. feeling. I remember, I remember coming back from Colon, Michigan with a friend of mine years ago, a long, long time ago, a guy by the name that I, uh, a friend of mine, David Penn, 
and he was pulled over. We were pulled over for speeding. I was in the, the, the passenger side, and I will never forget it was late at night, maybe 1, 2 in the morning, quite late, so I guess we would have been suspicious at that point. And the guy, uh, two cops, uh, one came up on the, the, the driver's side, and the other police officer stood at the back with his gun drawn through the back window. And I was totally freaked out by that. And I mean, like, holy smokes, guys, it's us. <laughs> what are you doing? But then on reflection, well, you know, dark night, dark road, no lights. You kind of don't blame them, right? Well, yeah, in the States, you kind of don't blame them. I don't know about pointing the gun right at you. Oh, yeah, it was, well, now, whether it was pointed at our heads, I don't know, but it was certainly pointed at the car through the through the back window. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that, we... So we traveled with an officer as he made several stops, and yeah, you see him get out, and this is pretty routine police stuff. But he's got his hand on his gun, yeah, and I bet. you know why. Yeah, yeah, Dif- different, different culture for sure. Yeah, I think what what I what I don't know. I don't want to sort of you know. Uh, um, hmm. Well, well, yeah, go, yeah, David. What what we were told, and that was one of the things we were looking at, and <clears> one of the reasons. The chief reason we went to Albuquerque was to hook up with that training institute that you see every right. from there, and they happen to be in Albuquerque. And Albuquerque had has a terrible reputation, right. well earned reputation for shootings of the mentally ill. So that was so it was a a lucky or unlucky right. happenstance that the Caliber Press happened to be training there at that time. But the reason that we wanted Caliber Press or any of the big American training outfits was because we've been hearing from a lot of police officers that. Canadian officers have been going um, south to take these kinds of courses. Interesting. And we okay. do know that Caliber Press trains through Canada, too. So this kind of very, <coughs> I think in Canadian terms, it's hypervigilant. It's pretty normal for American society, but I think Canadian police are maybe getting this sort of hypervigilant vigilant attitude that comes from, from American policing. I don't know that it's necessary. I think we still can reach back for that. British model where you can de-escalate your way out of most situations, but you know most most people, most calls are not are not violent calls. They're not bad guys anymore. They're people in distress. Is, is there? Would you put it in the sense that there's a more in the UK or the UK-based system? Is there? Is it? Is it more relational, Helen? Is it more human in a way, or is that is that is that a fair distinction to make? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean. Um, in the UK, police officers are more part of the community, and they appear to be more part of the community when they're out there. They're much less. There's not quite the same feeling that there is when a police officer enters a coffee shop in. Interesting. Uh, yeah, in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, it's true. That's so funny that you say it that way because it immediately took me to that. You know, a, a, an officer walks in, and you're just sort of impressed by the uniform and the weapon and the hat and the, the size of them usually, right? And the guns. The guns, exactly. You're right. There is a moment. It's the true. The message is power. Yeah, it, it, it is, yeah. And that's not the message you get when you travel with, uh, with British police. You do get a message of, of help. Right. So, yeah, it's very, very different. And can we do something about that? I still think we can. I think... I think and hope that Canadian police can spend a lot longer in the UK thinking about how to incorporate some of this, some more of this culture, because I think it is doable. I don't think we have to uh, to drink the Kool-Aid that comes mm. from the border. I think we still have that 
the option of a much nicer cup of tea from the UK. Right, right. What did, what did you what do you learn about mental health? I mean, you know, what about, about about vulnerabilities, about the fact that we're all broken? I mean, what what kind of things bubble to the surface for you there? Well, a big thing, as you know, is that you know the the statistic is that one in five of us will suffer some kind of mental crisis in our lifetime. We all we all know that. I think probably most of us have in our connection somebody who suffers reason at least somebody, if not more than one person, who suffers fairly badly. So I think the big thing that came up here was, again, simply the vulnerability. If if you're sitting, as I was, in your backyard and you're watching somebody that you really care about who's having a particularly bad bout in their illness and they're heading off downtown on the sea bus and you really wonder you know, what they're heading into and you're really hoping that they don't get you know, in the midst of a, of a delusion get too vocal and look scary to somebody else. And that, I think, is the, the thing for all of us, is that, yeah, your loved one didn't get shot, but right. when you see not just Michael Elegon in his hospital gown, but Michael McIsaac naked in, yes. in December oh, weather. Yeah, tragic, tragic For story. any one of us, yeah. and there are so many of yep. us who have loved ones in that situation, it's that, that we do have to look differently. And there is a way, too, and I think we all know well, that what the oh, one of the things that struck me is I mean don't we all just want to be listened to, and 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 I mean I, that's the sense I got with some of the folks that you you know the the, the shootings that you 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 say wow if I could have just sat down with these guys in in a coffee shop or in a hospital room or in in w- if they, we could have got them in front of a counselor and and I'm sure that's happened for many of these folks for for years I suppose if they've been suffering from mental health issues but this whole idea of just what well, comes out a couple times in the film where you know so this guy's shouting at you and then the police shout back what's that going to do that's that's not going to help anybody right it's just going to confuse these folks even more yeah, and that's a point that, that mental health experts will make and that police are still trying to get a handle on yeah. trying to train this stuff but haven't yet. Is if you're already hearing voices in your head yes. and then there are a bunch of people that start shouting commands at yeah. you, the odds of you reacting to that calmly are, are very, very small. Pre- in the UK training that you mentioned earlier, you see even though they're coming into a guy raving yes. and they're holding shields, you still see that they, and they talk about this in their debrief afterwards, they appoint one person to do the talking. Right. Still, even though they're holding large plexi shields in front of them, you still have one person quite calmly making contact. Right. With the person in crisis. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, that still can be done for people. And that's, again, the stuff that I think police are trying to learn. Yeah. Still think that to make that training effective, you have to incorporate it all the way down the line. You can't right. apply that over. Yeah, to, oh got my God, he's holding a knife, so all bets are off. It's got to, yeah, it's got to, got, yeah, got to be top down, bottom up. So it's a, it's, it's fear, but it's also misunderstanding. Yeah, fear, misunderstanding, and it's, you know, if you're going to have to react very quickly in dangerous situations, you, I'd say you get a kind of trained instinct, and the trained instinct mm. change. Yeah, it, that becomes the first reaction, right? Yeah. Yeah. The more positive response, the relational response, the eye contact, whatever that might mean. Tell me about Rialto and the body cams. Fast, really interesting. Uh, the stats that they they tossed out about uh, the drop in, in in complaints and the uh, the drop in violence and so on. Um, there's this sense of I guess the police officer now is being watched. They've got a camera on their 
Is it on their shoulder? It's kind of strapped to their shoulder? In there, it's, um, oh, yes, it's on their shoulders in reality. You saw me, see me hesitate there because there, in some places it's on your shoulder and some it's on your glasses. Oh, okay. Actually, Rialto, I think it's on your glasses. But I'm not sure. One way or the other, yes, it records everything that happens. You, you know, when they go in in the morning in Rialto to their morning meeting, the first thing they do is grab their body cam from mm. the row along one wall, <coughs> flip it on, and it's on for every public hmm. reaction. They turn it on before they go into any kind of reaction. So, yeah, it was really interesting. So the other, the other thing I thought was neat about this was that the police chief in Rialto is a guy who happened to be getting his, uh, his Ph.D. at Cambridge in the Institute of Criminology. So it's the other thing to know about police. There are a lot of much more educated uh, police out there now, and that, that's, I think, a change. It's just making its way through policing, too. But he decided since the, the first wave of body cams were just coming in as he was taking his postgraduate degree, so he decided that he would make that his thesis. Hmm. So everybody, all of the officers for a period of time uh, were, were wearing the body cams. And what they discovered was an 88% decrease in complaints against police, which is interesting. It was so very interesting. Police are behaving better or people are knowing that they can no longer um, make specious complaints against police or both. But there was also a 60% reduction in the use of force. So, I mean, that's huge, 60%. It's it's crazy. So what? Okay. So the cynic in me a little bit comes out here, and I guess the philosopher a little bit too. So let me get this straight. You got to incentivize ethical and moral, good, decent behavior. So in other words, I'm going to get in trouble because I'm now on camera. So therefore, I won't yell or shout or swear or pull my gun. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. We all have these inner voices. We all have. For most of us, I think it's probably our parents that are with us always. Right. right. And if your parents... Great. Thanks for the reminder, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I love having my parents in my head most of the time. That's right. But, you know, depending on who your parent is, that, that inner ethicist may not be as strong as you'd mm. like them to be. Now, maybe those people should never be police officers. Right. I don't know. We all slip. Sure. It's another way of saying that everything I do is public and transparent here. There, there, I mean, just, I mean, the idea of being watched, right? I mean, that, that changes everything. I mean, I, if you think somebody's watching you, whether it is your parent or it's a friend or it's a neighbor, you, you are going to behave a little bit differently. There's no question, right? I mean, just something as simple as the window being open when you come out of the shower, you know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have a different reaction, it seems to me. So this idea of, well, it's, it's used it, 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 punitively too, right, with kids in, in schools and in prisons, this idea that we're always being watched. We're going we're gonna to change the, the way we do things. Yeah, we are. And, you know, there's, we could talk a long time just about that. There's definitely some better and worse things about that. Mm-hmm. But in this case, and I went in thinking, okay, privacy issues. Right, uh, yeah, sure. Storage issues, how you sort through all this stuff. I went in not totally sold, and I came out pretty sold. On wow. Well, and, and also just, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, I mean, there was the film a couple of years ago. Uh, I can't think of the stars in it right now or who directed it, but End of Watch. I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it was essentially, most of the film was filmed uh, through police cams. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it, it's going to, I would think it's going to open up some uh, doors for filmmaking in the future, for certainly for not, documentarians. I've not seen it. I just wrote it down. Yeah. And that's a lot of, like the Elegon case that you saw, the, the man in the hospital gown. 
Yes. That's the police dash cam. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because that's that's a whole other that's a whole other world, right? The the dash cams as well. It is, and the thing about video, generally, however you capture it, whether it's the Paul Boyd, the man in Vancouver who's crawling across the street when the final fatal shots fired, yeah. or whether it's Elegon in his gown, or whether it's the McIsaac video, which is a little bit of just a passerby, the the naked man who was having a seizure out in um, in Ontario in December. All those pieces of video were the things that made it possible and necessary and probable, I guess, that a real conversation was going to happen about whether or not there could have been a different outcome. Did these people have to die? If there hadn't been video on any of these circumstances, the chances are very good that what would have happened is what happened 10 and 20 years ago, Mm. which is that police say, you know, we did, there was a threat. We did everything we could. It was a, basically, it was a good shoot. And that, right. we had to accept that at some point because we had nothing else. We had nothing, we had no other kind of evidence to allow us to look at, the, look at it and see whether or not we as a concerned public saw something different. Now, police will tell you that you can't tell everything in, in a video, and of course we know no. that. You can't tell no. everything in a video, but you can tell some things. And in fact, if I can rant just a tiny bit about yeah, please. Boy, the Paul Boyd case in Vancouver is a classic for video because uh, Mr. Boyd was shot in 2007. The officer was cleared. It seemed like he was definitely mentally ill. He Something was going on. Yeah. He had a chain as a reporting. When police arrived, there was an altercation between him and an officer. sounded like he had come at the officer. What could the officer do? He shot him. The surface, the, vi- the video didn't surface until three years later in 2010, and it was simply because a tourist had right. heard about the uh, the police officer being cleared and went, "Hey, I kind of remember that. I think I filmed that." Finds the video on his phone, and what you see in the video is that whatever transpired beforehand, at the time that the fatal shots fired, this man is on his hands and knees, nothing in his hands, crawling across the street. So without the video, the case was reopened and a bunch of other stuff happened. But without the video there, it simply would have been another case of, well, we just did what we had to do and involved your uncle. Right. Same thing with Chikansky. I mean, training in Vancouver for in British Columbia for police officers changed dramatically after Robert Chikansky was tasered at Vancouver International. And it changed because of the video, because it was clear that there could have, should have been a different outcome. Yeah, it's uh, it's so, I mean, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, we don't, I mean, you would obviously understand this way more, having made the film and so on, to stand over here and to look into a situation or to videotape it and go, oh, yeah, I get it, and isn't it horrible, is, is really such a massive oversimplification of a pretty complicated issue. And the reality is 20,000 uh, mental health calls, essentially, is that right, a year? that the police respond to? I mean, that's... 20,000 plus in Toronto. Yeah, just in Toronto. Wow. Wow, that's, you know, that's pretty significant. So in a sense, the numbers are incredibly low. So I mean, that's, I guess, the good news. The better news is that your film and other training and so on is going to hopefully change the way people think and the public thinks, but also, more importantly, I suppose, the way the way the police respond. Yes, and I think the, the Forcillo case, I think the fact that he faced charges in the shooting of Sammy Yatim, mm. and that uh, well, he hasn't been exactly convicted, but right. um, certainly 
he's been tried, I think all of that has made a big difference. It makes it impossible for police to look away from this stuff. It makes it impossible to not say, okay, the public really needs us to do something different. Whether or not we feel we were justified in, in the way we acted, the public, who is our employer, is telling right, us, right. no, we have to look at this again. So can I circle back? We're probably going to have to wrap it up here shortly, sadly. Uh, but can I circle back to the original, one of the original questions I asked you, is this a film about police shootings and, 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 uh, or is this a film about mental health? Both. And it's un and it's unfair to, uh, to, to polarize it like that, but. It's both. I mean, it's very much, I think, uh, it is a film about police shootings of people in mental crisis and can they be prevented? It's as simple as that. It's more about police than it is about mental illness, for sure. I mean, there's a lot more to be said about different kinds of mental illness, about the, the system. There's so many more things that could be done yeah. in by us uh, as as a community to make to make things better for people who suffer from serious mental illness. But essentially, if these when somebody calls 911 because somebody's acting bizarre on the street, it's more than likely going to be police who attend. Right. And whether or not they should, whether or not you see this as being something that's been dumped in their lap, it is going to be police that attend. And we need them to be trained well enough so that it ends well for people on both ends of the gun. I mean, you don't want, you don't even want to think about what happened to James Frisillo's life, too. The Yatim family was destroyed, so was the Frisillo mm. family. Mm. Um, I think the film tries to make the point, or at least tries to open up the thought that there is another way of doing this so that, as they say, everybody goes home at the end of the day. Well, I think I think it's wonderful what you guys have done with it. I, I love uh, this idea of, you know, creating more space, right? Creating more space for others. I mean, to me, that's one of them. I mean, there's so many different messages in the film. And like you say, we could talk about power and structures and systems and all kinds of different things. And this isn't about pointing the finger. It's a hopefully about coming to a better understanding of the other and, and uh, not just about how to get along, but, but living together and so on. And, and uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh, the, 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 the fear, the misunderstanding. I guess it gets us a little step closer to being a little more human. That's kind of what I take away. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that was one of the reasons why we wanted the public to meet the victim. Mm. What you tend to hear after a police shooting is essentially crazy guy behaving dangerously right. dies. Right. Um, and that is that hurt all over again. The families had already lost somebody. So yeah, we wanted to say, want to remind people, people being both the public and the police, that these are people that were lost. Helen, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, I hope we can, at some point, it's become kind of a tagline for me almost, but I hope we can do a part two down the road. There's so much more we could chat about. Uh, and, and I wish you well on your, your next project. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Helen Slinger uh, with Bountiful Films, the uh, bountiful.ca, and uh, the film Hold Your Fire. Check it out on cbc.ca backslash firsthand, I think. It's going to be there, did you say for six years, Helen? Yeah. It's going to be downloadable for six or years. Thank, thanks so much, and, and congratulations. My pleasure. Thank you, David. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.